0: Today, our guest is someone you know. This is the person that is everybody's favorite attorney from the keepers. (laughs) Not that there were that many, so I have a feeling you're all thinking about this one. I want to welcome Attorney Beverly Wallace to our program. Hi, Beverly. Thank you for coming to, to speak with
1: us.
2: Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: And I'm going to start tonight. So the first thing we'd like to ask you is, everybody's been sending us questions, but the one that keeps coming up is, how did you even come to be involved in the doe Roe case? And I just want to remind our listeners that Doe is Gene Wainer and Roe is Teresa Lancaster. So how did that begin?
2: I came to be involved in that. I got a job working for a man named Phil Dante's. And Phil was lead counsel in this case. I believe he knew Jean's brother. And after she had been represented by Steve Tully unsatisfactorily to her, I think her brother reached out and contacted Phil. I I was working for Phil at the time. And at the time, he was using a retired police detective to interview potential victims and witnesses. And I don't recall the reason, but I went and re-interviewed someone, and what we learned was that women were more comfortable, I think, talking to another woman than they were a retired male detective. So I just started re-interviewing witnesses and victims and chasing down leads, and that was how I initially got involved. It just seemed to be more productive than what they were obtaining working with the detective
0: are you able are you allowed to say who that was
2: <laughs> oh i sure his name was richard bussey and he shared space in the office with mr dantes and he had initially done i think some of the interviewing was jimmy maggio part of your team at the time he was Phil brought when it came time to fall suit he brought jim maggio in and the three of us We used to call it our Wednesday prayer meeting. We'd get together every Wednesday to touch base and compare notes and see what we thought needed to be done in the coming week. And then once we filed suit, it became even more important to coordinate efforts so we weren't duplicating what the others were doing. And we just divided up tasks we had the assistance of the two Baltimore Sun reporters who were doing some of our legwork. Those, and what I learned was that investigative reporters are relentless. And when I ran up against a brick wall, I turned around. They just got out a ladder and went over it. So we just got together every Wednesday for our prayer meetings. And not that we prayed. I don't want anybody to think we did. We certainly didn't. It was just what we called it, coordinated efforts and touch base on what we had accomplished and what we thought we needed to get done?
0: Well, a lot of the listeners are from high schools around the archdiocese, especially in the area of Keogh. And I have to say that I actually knew Jim from high school. And this is funny, he's not going to remember this, but he taught me how to smoke a cigar. So that's my memory of Jim Maggio. And I know that he's well liked in his practice now in Catonsville. So,
2: yeah, I think he's pretty much retired now, but he comes from a big Catholic family. And uh, I think they all went to parochial schools in Catonsville. So, everybody knows the Maggio boys. Right. Absolutely.
3: Beverly, are you from Maryland?
2: I am not from Maryland. I moved here with my husband. Oh my goodness. When did we, we moved here, I think around 1987 or something. I used to be an operating room nurse and we moved up here. And for reasons that aren't important, I decided I needed to go back to school. So I went back to school and I hadn't actually been out of school that long when I landed with Mr. Dante's and started interviewing people for this case.
3: I know for myself, from watching the keepers, You remind me of a really cool aunt that I have, and you seem so kind-hearted. So I have to ask, what made you want to become an attorney? I
2: would like to have some really nice reason. I don't have a good reason. I had a good friend, and we decided to go back to school, and collectively, we had six children, and we flipped a coin. She went to medical school, and I went to law school. And I would like to say I wanted to change the world or save the world, but it was something as simple as I needed a project. And school was always something I really enjoyed, so I went to law school.
3: After you graduated from law school, did you start working with your practice then, or was it later on?
2: When I was in law school, I I started working as a law clerk in the state's attorney's office downtown in the sex offense unit. Sharon May was my supervisor and my mentor which is why I, how I knew her and involved her when we were investigating this case. And then I took the bar, I passed the bar, and I needed a real job and was splitting time between the state's attorney's office and working in private practice and ultimately just for selfish reasons because I had more freedom. I just left the state's attorney's office and went to work with Phil Dante's.
3: You said that Sharon May was your mentor, so did you think highly of her back then?
2: I did think highly of her, and I still think highly of her. I think Sharon was one of the smartest people down there, and she's one of the best trial attorneys I ever trained under. She's very good at what she does. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said,
0: is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever.
2: The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. Twenty-three years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramis went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about
0: two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack.
2: You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're
1: judging me now. They've been judging me damn there my whole life.
2: You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee?
1: Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Which
2: brings in the whole issue of why she didn't prosecute this case, but that's another question.
3: Yes. Yeah, we'll ask that. We promise
2: we'll get to that. I'm sure you will. But no, Sharon was the head of the sex offense unit when I was there, and I have a lot of respect for her.
0: Beverly, you alluded to this a few minutes ago when you joined the team of Dantes and Maggio that your initial role was to re-interview the witnesses. Can you talk a little bit about that without sharing anything confidential and then explain to us how a case like this works? Because I have a feeling like that the interviewing takes a long time before you all at your Wednesday meeting decide what you're going to do. So can you share with us like how things happened for you, what your specific roles were as that went along, like a timeline for us?
2: I think I'm trying to remember who I interviewed first. And the first person I interviewed, I believe was a school teacher that had taught at Keo. And she gave me the name of someone else who I contacted and people kind of connects together because this person knew this person and this person knew this person and this person that knew this person. And so as I started interviewing people and what I was uncovering was on a continuum of inappropriate conversations to the other extreme, which is what happened to Jeannie and Therese. And there was a whole lot in between. In the meantime, the archdiocese was saying, we can't corroborate any of this. And so I was taking various people with me to talk to the representatives of the archdiocese, which is was a learning process in and of itself, because I always referred to them as old white men in black dresses, because these were the most clueless people on the planet. And I would take people to talk to them, and they would look at me like, hey, you know, what, what's the big deal? And I'll give you an example of that. There was a young woman who, as a 16-year-old, had gone to Ocean City and had taken a shower with her boyfriend, and they'd done a little manual exploration, period. That's all, that's all they did. And Somehow, Maskell got word of this shower that they'd taken, and he convinced her that she was likely pregnant, and but that he could assist her and check and make sure. So he has her disrobe and essentially does a pelvic exam on her on his desk, at which time he pronounced that she wasn't pregnant. She puts on her clothes and goes back to class. So as she's telling the archdiocesan officials about this, she concludes, and one of them said, he touch you sexually? And she goes, I don't really know. I'm not really sure. I don't think so. And they looked at me like, why are we even talking to her? And he said, he didn't touch her. Why is she here? At which point I almost went across a conference room table and I said, on what planet is that appropriate? And they they just didn't, they didn't get it that I could have told her she wouldn't. They just didn't get that was abusive.
0: We know that a lot of men and women, I don't know about how many men came forward both when Jean's family sent out the postcards and then when your firm, your law firm, put a, a notice in the newspaper. And the, I remember seeing that and then sent letters to everybody they could reach that had gone to Keo. because both my sister and I, she was three years younger than I was and I was in the class of 70. We both received that letter and we knew nothing. But of course, all the rumors start I'm curious as to if you have a ballpark figure as to how many people actually contacted your firm that were first or secondhand witnesses.
2: I would say probably between 60 and 70. And when I talked to someone, whether it was in person or on the phone, and most of it I did in person because it's not the kind of thing that I thought was appropriate to talk to somebody on the phone if you don't know if you can't look at the person you're telling, I think it's uncomfortable. So I generally would hop in the car and go meet with these people. And back then computers were in their infancy, but I kept a computer file of everybody I talked to and all their contact information and a and detailed notes of what they had told me. And I turned that file over to everybody. I turned it it was an exhibit in our trial. I turned it over to the prosecutor's office, I turned it over to the detectives for the prosecutor's office. I turned it over to the Baltimore City Police, the Baltimore County Police. I turned it over to opposing counsel. I turned it over to Sharon May. I turned it over to everybody. You know, when the archdiocese comes out and says, we didn't know, we didn't have we didn't have any of this. That's a bunch of bullshit. I've seen an abbrevi- abbreviated, it's about
0: 15 pages long document that has, it's not, I don't believe it's from a computer. It looks like it's from a typewriter that I received. Actually, Jean provided it for me. Some of the notes that were taken and from some of the people that came, that responded to the request for information, and it would have either your name or it'll say Phil or Maggio. And I've talked to a lot of those women and they, Told me that their parents certainly did address this at the school to Maskell himself. One mom was relentless in trying to get through to the archdiocese way before any of you were involved. And it's just so unfortunate that nobody thought about recording those phone calls on our end or getting something in writing from whoever they spoke to. that did indeed say that they did report this. It's very frustrating for everybody.
2: Right. We didn't record anything back then, but I can tell you that all of my notes would have the person's name, phone number, and address. It had all their kind. Unless somebody said, I don't want this going any further than this conversation, in which case I always respected that. But most people said, if I can help, I will. And I turned all of that over to everybody. So when, like I said, when they say we didn't have any idea, bullshit. They knew everything that I knew. And I went to the archdiocese probably seven or eight times with various people who said, this happened to me, this is what happened. And they just, like I said, these were clueless old white men in black dresses who just would look at me like, so what? So what is, just was very frustrating. So. Mm -hmm.
0: Beverly, when you actually, when this went into a courtroom. We know it never went to trial, but right, it you know, just had a hearing. And can you explain what a hearing is and what your role is during that hearing? Because we, I've read the documentation of all of that, which was available at the archives, and uh, Abby took notes and I cried. We're very different, but it was very detailed. And what? actually is a hearing and what is your role with the the two women during a hearing like that? I think of
2: a trial as you're trying the factual issues. And what was tried in court was whether or not our case was going to be allowed to go forward because their defense was that the statute of limitations had long since passed and therefore our clients were precluded from bringing the lawsuit. And we were trying to get it, and typically a statute of limitations will give you X period of time to bring your lawsuit. There's an exception to that called the discovery rule, which says if you can't discover something, your time starts running when you discover it. And the prime example of this is if a surgeon leaves a sponge inside you and you have no clue Your statute of limitations doesn't run until you discover that this has happened. And at the time, repressed memory, if you want to call it that, was new on the scene. And our argument was that because memories weren't present in the consciousness of especially Jeannie, then the statute of limitations should start running at the time she recovered those memories and the other side said no that's voodoo science that shouldn't be allowed in the state of maryland even though at the time all of most of the states that had ruled on whether or not recovered memories affected were covered by this discovery rule had ruled in our favor but maryland court said Yeah, no, we're not going to allow that, which made our case dead in the water. And so what the hearing was, them saying this is voodoo science, and they brought in Paul McHugh from Hopkins, and they brought in a man named, I believe his name was Jason Brandt, who is a memory specialist also at Hopkins. We brought in our experts that said we've examined them. This is a real thing. And the judge, Judge Hillary Kaplan, says, I'm going to dismiss your lawsuit based on the statute of limitations having run and after a day's testimony where both Teresa and Jeannie testified about what they knew and when they knew it and then we took it down on that legal issue to the court of appeals which is the highest court in Maryland and they said no (laughs) they said in a unanimous decision no who attends the hearing like I
0: I Don't think that Jean and Teresa were permitted to even meet each other. Is that correct?
2: I think they were in the courtroom, if I recall, subsequent to each other. They weren't in there at the same time. Okay. But anybody can attend a hearing. We just, we believed everybody, including Teresa and Jeannie, believed that if they were allowed to meet and talk, that the opposing counsel would have an argument that they had colluded in order to get their stories on the same level and so we were more comfortable being able to say they've never met each other.
0: Now the attorneys that were the attorneys for the defendants I know who they are and their names were in the keepers but have you ever had any opportunity to talk to any of them since all this happened?
2: A lot of them are dead. Kevin Murphy, who was also in the keeper defended the archdiocese. He came he's based in Washington and I have to say Kevin in my opinion was the most professional on the other side. His attitude seemed to be I'm going to fight the legal issue and I'll deal with the facts later. And I think he was generally courteous to everybody and involved. Maskell was defended by a good friend of his named Michael Lahane, who was actually a maritime lawyer. I don't think he had ever seen the inside of a courtroom. And he was just caught up in, My buddy Joe is a swell guy. He was found dead on his boat subsequent to this. The nuns were defended by a man named Tommy Harrison who didn't really do much. They just rode on the coattails of the archdiocese and he also is dead. The gynecologist, Christian Richter, was defended by a lawyer named down at Eccleston and Wolfe. And I thought she was probably the least respectful to our clients and treated them the shabbiest.
3: And, of course, he died.
2: Yes, he died. Richter. He had a big glowing obituary in the Baltimore Sun.
3: And they left this part out, didn't they? <laughs>
2: they left this part out. He was a reprehensible creep. He's the one that Bob Erlinson asked him if he had allowed Maskell in the examining room when he was examining these young girls. And his response was, being a priest, it was his only opportunity to see a woman in that position. So yeah, sure I did.
3: Isn't that? I remember Bob telling us that when we were in person in Baltimore recently. Oh my
2: God. I was just horrified.
3: Speaking of Bob, we've talked to him before on the podcast and our listeners will remember him as the investigative journalist covering the Doro case, but can you tell me how you guys started getting together? And I would love for you to tell us the story about you both dressing up for mass.
2: Yeah, we did dress up. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm not sure. The connection was with Phil Dante's. I believe that he knew Joe Naroski, the other investigative reporter who has since died. They came in and it was rocky beginning because they're used to their balls to the wall kind of investigation, and I banged heads with them a couple of times saying, you can't do that. This is a more delicate situation, and if I'm giving you access to things, you have to treat it with respect. And we reached a really nice working relationship where they didn't publish anything that we didn't say, yeah, it's okay to publish. Not that we had approval. We certainly didn't do that, but if they were going to run a story we made sure that it was the timing was okay with us. Bob was great fun. We decided to go to mass. We wanted to school was still holding masks and we just wanted to see this creep. And I'm not Catholic and I don't think Bob is. So I ask everybody, what do you wear? And it's a nice casual. So we go to a mass on a Saturday at 6 p.m. And this was a very blue collar neighborhood. I had on a pair of white wool slacks and a sweater. Bob had on khakis and a navy blazer and a cotton shirt with a button-down collar. Everybody else there had on blue jeans and flannel shirts. (laughs) We stood out like a neon flashing light. It was so funny because I'm going, this is nice casual. And he goes, yeah, we're nice casual. And it was funny because we came out on the porch after Mass and Mass goes standing out there. Thank you for coming. God bless you and all that. And Bob leans over to me and says, you want to shake his hand? I was like, hell no, I might not be able to wash it off. And I ducked off the side through the bushes. So these two fairly well-dressed people are headed through the bushes after, I'm sure people were clueless as to what these people are doing. It was pretty funny. Did he know who you were? No, I don't think so. We never said a word to him personally. At mass, I think Bob had interviewed him, but we never said a word to him personally. We just wanted to see him.
3: I love it's, that story.
2: <laughs> it was funny. But so forget the nice casual blue jeans and a sweatshirt or a flannel shirt would be perfectly appropriate in this neighborhood. And
3: you'll know that for next time, just in case. Yeah,
2: next time. <laughs> can't trust my Catholic advisors. <laughs>
3: Beverly, what is your perspective on how the defendants and their attorney during the Doe Row case handled that
2: case? I think that, I think it was very sad, especially the archdiocese. Back you would expect nothing less. But the archdiocese, I'm not a Catholic. I always thought that the archdiocese was like this benevolent organization that tried to guide the spiritual lives of their parishioners. That's a bunch of bull. It's a business. It's a dollars and cents business. And if they had spent half as much time, effort, and money on really addressing the issues with priest abuse, it would have been a whole nother story. And I think that their position and what they essentially tried to do was discredit our clients and make them out to be just to discredit what they were saying, that these are troubled young women who are making up lies and we're embarrassed that we have to deal with this. And I find that extraordinarily sad because I don't understand the whole blind faith that you see in the Catholic Church. I didn't grow up in it, so it, to me it doesn't make a lot of sense. And you teach your children that if nobody's allowed to touch you and if somebody does, then you tell an adult and they'll handle it. And so what you find is not only do they not handle it, they shield and defend and protect the perpetrators and when someone comes forward and says this happened to me, not only is the archdiocese Dio- looking the other way, they're trying to discredit you. The police are looking the other way. The prosecutor's office is looking the other way, and it's kind of—I think—it adds injury to what's our, to the scars that are already there. And I think that's reprehensible. They didn't want to talk to us. They didn't want to hear any of our victims or witnesses and they very hardline went to defend it and sadly they were successful. I think they came away from the keepers with a massive black eye and it cracks me up to see their efforts to try and ameliorate the damage to their reputation with the letters they send out and all that because they're a business. They're a dollars and cents business. Nothing more, nothing less. And the fact that they're doing it in the name of God Makes it twice as reprehensible. Maskell defending it as with his good friend, the admiralty lawyer, you would think that he was just the nicest guy on the planet, but that's what you'd expect from him. The gynecologist, we deposed him. He didn't seem to see an issue with having Maskell present or communicating with Maskell about the health of these young girls, which made me question, who paid his bill? He wasn't free. At what point... I know I have daughters. If someone had called me and said, hey, I'd like to take your teenage daughter to a gynecologist, that would fall squarely in the oh, hell no category. So I don't know how any of that even happened, but there was a lot of that. But he just, he was an old kind of out of it person by the time we deposed him who didn't seem to see any problem with his involvement. And the nuns were a non-issue. So that's what I thought of their defense.